Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Born Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Anybody ever told you you should be a producer? <laughs> Anybody ever said that to you? Nope, just my just the prison prison warden actually <laughs> for my work release program. For your work said, release, no. I hear that's what they do. I hear there's some. It's a whole new. It's definitely a, kind of a new media approach to uh, to prison work is podcasting. <laughs> well, and they're really working at uh, developing so much reality TV in the prison system that this was just a natural uh, path for them to follow. Yeah. What would it take to convince you to do to to pitch a reality show about me? Like, what would that pitch look like about my life? What would you What would you do to convince uh, your team that my life is worthy of, of a reality show? Well, first of all, I'd talk like this. <laughs> I hate you so much, <laughs> and I love you, and I hate you. <laughs> All right, let's do That's it. what I'm yeah, talking about is all the hate play. and love. It's because it's because we strive for conflict. Good. Keep it yes, keep going. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Muppets. <laughs> is that how you Oh I picture I, I, I can picture feel it. that's how your house is. I feel like there's just Muppets everywhere. That's what but you I feel imagine like, my house. I feel like you're one of those people who don't really notice them there. Oh. And your family, there's this conflict because your family notices them and the Muppets feel sad because you don't notice them, but it's this conflict. And that, that's just what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. What I think is important to, to think about when you think about, I, first of all, it, it is amusing and gratifying that you imagine that I live in a house of Muppets and don't really notice them. But I, all of a sudden I got a vision and just, I want you to go with me here. I want you to, I want you to just, just walk with me uh, on the beach is a, a vision of of telling the flashback stories of my life through Muppetry. Hmm. Like the seminal moments of my life, the time I slapped a kid on the on the, the fifth grade playground because I was too chicken to actually punch him. 
Awesome. And, and I had to go Love back it. behind the behind the shed and just weep. <laughs> <laughs> Learned a valuable lesson in humility and humanity that day. <laughs> I and I can see it all played out with. I think I think you would be yeah. a little green muppet with a pink pinkish purple nose. Oh yes, yeah, you're really bringing it home. Yeah, yeah. This is you could sell this. I I I sure could. And luckily, I don't have to use your name, so I can. Uh, I don't have to get any rights from you. <laughs> oh, I'm just giving away the keys to the castle here. That's great. That's right. It's awesome. fantastic. This is. Um, oh, I can't wait to see this. This is gonna, totally going to be my trailer pick. <laughs> you do anything good this week? Uh, what have I done this week? What have I done? You know, uh, my my daughter turned nine, so it was a it was a week of celebration. How's that feel? How's that feel, nine? Because she's your oldest. Yes, it's pretty crazy. Where were you nine? That, uh, what would tell me about nine years ago today? Nine years ago today, mm-hmm. I was probably not sleeping a whole lot. Mm-hmm. You know, had a little newborn baby in my arms. Likely, I was uh, I was uh, getting ready to do another feeding or changing a, a poopy diaper. The thing is, you have it really pretty much together. I imagine you weren't swayed by a newborn. Not really. No, I think my my uh, younger self may have had a lot more difficulty with it. But I think by the time that I had yeah. babies, I was pretty okay with them. Hmm. I'll never forget. We have a mutual friend who came over who lived in the area at the time, and he came over and said, "I don't, I don't want to hold it." <laughs> said <laughs> when when my oldest was born, he said, "I don't want to hold her." I said, why not? Like, it's a baby. It's not going to bite you. He said, well, what if I drop her? I said, you're not going to drop her? He said, I might. I said, well, don't tell me that. I said, why would you possibly drop her? And he looks at me and says, what if I have a seizure? Have you ever had a seizure in your life? No, but you don't know. So That's fantastic. Spoiler, he ended up holding the baby. (laughs) A meteor could hit me. What if? Uh, we have, uh, let's see, a, a bit of an announcement. We've got, uh, we're doing a, a, a film board this weekend. Mm, yes, as a quick turnaround, another film board. That's right. Come very on. excited about this one. We All of us, I think, have been looking forward to this film. We're doing The Martian. comes out, uh, by the time you hear this, it's probably out. And we will be talking about it on Saturday night. So we're uh, very much looking forward to uh, getting that conversation out to you. And uh, so that I, I am seeing it in 3D. I already got tickets. Do you think it's going to have a better weekend, or do you think The Walk is going to have a better weekend? This, if there is ever a showdown, this is one of the showdowns I think that's going to be most interesting, because those two movies seem like they're right in the same class to me. Yeah, they, they definitely have kind of the same vibe. I mean, this one's got a little more of the sci-fi element going for it, I think, but mm-hmm. I think the vibe of them is going to be very much the same. And... The Walk is getting quite a bit of buzz as far as how sick it's making people. <laughs> they go watch the uh, the 3D version. So I'm I'm actually I'm quite looking forward to that. <laughs> Are you gonna try and double it up this weekend? You gonna see them both? If I can, yeah. I will. If I can. Oh, that's good. Um, I I don't know if I'll be able to get to it until next week, but very much looking forward to it. Absolutely. Uh, we've got a little bit of follow up. We've got a blot spot. Yes, we do. About that. This is a blot spot on Mother from our 
Uh, good friend Ben Lott. Ben said, Mother was a haunting and beautiful film. I loved how it kept me on my toes because I never knew what was coming next. And the son is a very interesting character, as both of you indicated, because we can never be confident how much he knows. He could be an utterly naive person with no real grasp on anything that happened to him, or it could be he is a brilliant sociopath that uses the ruse of a mental handicap to manipulate things in his favor or anywhere in between those two extremes. I also found it interesting the limited number of times we see liquid in the film and how much emphasis is put on those moments for the mother, almost like it is representative of her past mistake with the insecticide. Anyway, this was a powerful film and one I'd like to revisit sometime. Your rank 68 out of 203, my rank 64 out of 203. I feel like we've been kind of on the right track with Ben lately. Yeah, I think we uh, I think we have similar tastes here in the old Bong Joon-ho uh arena and i gotta tell you man that film mother has aged so well for me here here Uh, another week goes by i am i find myself thinking of it a lot particularly looking at the movie we're talking about tonight and the the parallels and just the visual parallels uh that i think really surprised me uh looking at these films that are ultimately really different um that have some very cool similarities so it was it was great absolutely uh, I think. I, do we have any other uh, news to follow up on? Just a just a sad death that um, we lost. Uh, director this past week, John Gearman, director of uh, films like Towering Inferno, Death on the Nile, King Kong, passed away at the age of eighty nine in his uh, home in England, I believe, and uh, just weeks before his ninetieth birthday. So uh, sad loss there. Very sad. I think we should probably tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello! And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, the third and final film in our very short series on the works of Bong Joon-ho with his 2013 post-apocalyptic train thriller, Snowpiercer. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the sort of person who knows that babies taste best, you should probably head right over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's hop on the train, circumnavigate the globe all the way over to Scotland to hear from Stephen. Hi, guys. This week's movie was Love is Strange uh, from last year with John Lithgow, Alfred Molina and Marissa Tomei. Molina, of course, was Doc Ock in the awesome Spider-Man 2 and Tomei will soon be playing Aunt May in the upcoming Spider-Man reboot. Hmm. This week's winner was Nell 2, whose previous win was Tootsie a couple of weeks ago. So congratulations, Nell 2. You are entered once again into the Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts Friday. So thanks, guys, and uh, see you later. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I'm pretty excited about mine. It's a documentary that's, uh, I think it may be out in limited release, or it's coming out soon in limited release. Um, but it looks really, really interesting. Actually, I guess it's coming out, uh, I don't know if it has a release date, but it's uh, it's kind of bouncing around festival circuit right now. 
and uh, but it premiered at Con back in May, and then Telluride in September. And it is the documentary Hitchcock Truffaut that is all about kind of that relationship that Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock developed over the course of a few weeks when they sat down together. And Truffaut, who was kind of a very young filmmaker and also author, basically interviewed Hitchcock about his career and all of his films and wrote this book called Hitchcock or Hitchcock Truffaut. And it's a great book. It's a book that I've had in my collection for years. Just lots of great stories about all of Hitchcock's films and his uh, just kind of the things that he's looking for in his films. But this is a this looks like a really interesting docu- documentary that not only is studying kind of the the relationship between these two guys and the filmmaking uh, that Hitchcock was making, along with Truffaut's as well. But then you get all these fantastic interviews with just tons of wonderful other filmmakers talking about what they've gleaned from uh, these two filmmakers and this book that they ended up working on. Wes Anderson, Peter Bogdanovich, David Fincher, James Gray, uh, you got Richard Linkletter, Paul Schrader, Martin Scorsese, lots of great filmmakers in there who are interviewed talking about this. So um, this is a film that uh, Kent Jones directed. He's kind of a, a I think he was uh, kind of a in the festival circuit as kind of a festival director and has been doing some documentaries over the last uh, couple decades. And, um, you know, as a fan of Hitchcock and Truffaut and all of the other directors who are in here, I'm really just excited because I think I love these sorts of stories where you get this uh, passion of these people kind of exploring what it is about these other filmmakers that... Um, makes them love movies about you know what it was that gave them tips on how to do certain things. I just find that stuff so fascinating. So I'm very excited about this uh, this documentary. Did you uh, did you see a letter to Elia? I did not. I did not. That was another of Kent Jones. Uh, Kent Jones, Martin Scorsese, and I haven't seen all of it. I it was one of those that I started with a friend, and we something got in the way, and we weren't able to finish it. And so I really want to. I would really like to see it because, you know, it's that same vibe. I think Hitchcock Truffaut looks fantastic. I mean, the, the moment they start talking in the trailer, I just feel like I am, uh, man, I am sucked in. I just, you know, hanging on the edge of, you know, the opinions of greats. And um, uh, so I'm, I'm with you. I cannot wait to see this. Um, when's it, when is it out? Is it already a digital thing? No, it's not. It's 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 a very limited release. I don't. I I've been looking for kind of the uh, the release dates for it, but I'm not finding anything other than the fact that it's uh, it, right now. It's just kind of bouncing around in film festivals. I think that it's going to be here in the U.S. coming up soon. It'll be at the Mill Valley Film Festival October fifteenth, the Tallgrass Film Festival on the sixteenth, Chicago International Film Festival October twenty fourth. Uh, in, then it, oh no, here it is. Okay, it looks like it's going to open limited in New York City, December second. I don't know how uh, how far it's going to go beyond that, but uh, it's one of those documentaries that I think hopefully will get kind of a nice slow release so that we all get a chance to see it. I agree. I can't wait. It looks really good. Uh, my trailer is man, Vincent Cassell, huh? That face. Mm. What a face. Uh, my trailer is Partisan, 
2015 drama and thriller. Uh, Alexander, a boy who has been raised in a sequestered commune, finds that his increasing unwillingness to fall in line puts him on a collision course with Gregory, the society's charismatic and domineering leader. Uh, it stars Vincent Cassell, uh, uh, Nigel Barber, Jeremy Chabriel, Florence Mazzara, Timothy Stiles, uh, a whole bunch of folks I've never heard of, but uh, very much uh, looking forward to seeing them in this film. It looks like such an interesting cast, such a, uh, it's really, it's one of those films that takes that subversive relationship between adult and child, uh, educator and pupil, and just turns it on its ear in what appears to be kind of a violent way. And I, I find the same emotional response to this that I get when I see, (laughs) I was thinking about this today. It's ironic. You would bring up Muppets. (laughs) <laughs> earlier because I, I as I was watching this trailer I thought this is why I love Avenue Q the Broadway show about the Muppets that sing and swear a lot uh-huh. when I see something about when I see uh, children like images of children doing things that are uncharacteristically like adult that I I find myself attracted to that I just it's weird right that means there's something wrong with me more than anything else I think <laughs> Uh, and so I, um, I, I'm very much interested in this film. I, it is an, a story of, it looks to be a story of escape. It comes from director Ariel Kleinman. Uh, and I don't know much of Ariel Kleinman. This looks like his first feature. Uh, has done a number of shorts. Sarah Singler uh, also has, it looks like, has been working with uh, uh, Ariel for uh, a number of years. Uh, and so it's a new team. It's a team that uh, looks like they brought together a visually interesting kind of um, uh, war-torn drama about adult and child. I think it looks really good. What do you think? It reminds me of uh, Martha, Marsa, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Yeah. In the in the kind of that kind of cult leader sort of role. It's just a different perspective. This is from kind of a young child kind of being turned by the leader rather than a a new coming a newcomer a, a woman newcomer being turned mm-hmm. by the leader. So um yeah, I I'm very uh this one definitely has piqued my curiosity and you're right about Cassell just a fascinating face somebody that you are drawn into as soon as you see him. Truly truly. Um and and such a um incredible breadth of talent i mean going from you know black swan oceans 13 black swan i mean just in his his u.s uh kind of or, or um, english releases uh he has um fantastic depth child hey, 44 child. we just talked about him uh, <laughs> gonna you know, say come on right right anyway so uh that looks like what october 2nd so it's coming it's, it's this it's weekend coming too. this weekend yeah that's right it's another one to open so uh you should probably won't see it because you're probably going to see either the martian or the walk but um you should then see it maybe next weekend it's going to be a huge there weekend you. weekend two is going to be huge for partisan there you go yeah andy you suffer from the misplaced optimism of the doomed this chaos a thousand people in an iron box 18 years I've hated the train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is the world. The train saved humanity. The engine lasts forever. The population must always be kept in balance. I said sit down. Passengers, eternal order flows from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. 
I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. Know your place. Keep your place. Those bastards in the front think they own us. We'll be different when we get there. What do you say? We take the engine and we control the world. When is the time? Soon. Snowpiercer, Andy, 2013, uh, originally 2013. I guess the U.S. released 2014, July 2014. Uh, this is uh, the third in our Bong Joon-ho series, uh, set in the future where the failed climate change experiment kills all life on the planet except for those who get on this train that travels around the globe and breaks the space-time continuum uh, in the wrong direction <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it is uh, written by Bong Joon-ho and Kelly uh, Masterson, along with some other uh, some other credits. Let's see who else was there. It's based on the um, the French graphic novel, which I have not seen or read, but I do did put a link in the show notes to the uh, translated version that that has recently uh, come out. You can get it in English and with the same artwork. And so that's that's a good thing. You should probably go do that. Have you read it? Yeah. I haven't, but um, but I, it really has piqued my curiosity, and I keep meaning to pick it up. I just haven't, along with the the uh, subsequent um, sequels that uh, they wrote. Jacques Loeb and Jean-Marc Rochette were the writers on the original and edited by Jacques Loeb and Benjamin Legrand. And then I believe Jacques Loeb ended up dying in uh, 1990, and I think uh, Rochette and Legrand ended up doing the uh, the sequels Um I think it was the Explorers and the Crossing. Mm. So uh, definitely things on my list to read. I, I really want to pick that up one of these days, but just haven't gotten around to it. Absolutely, uh, Kelly Masterson, uh, writer co-writer on this, um, also wrote one of uh, a film I have quite an affection for. Before the Neville, before the Neville, before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Before John Neville knows you're dead. Did you Did you see that? I'm gonna go ahead. And- I- train uh, steamroll right over your comment there <laughs> yes that's fine that's fine that's what we do here <laughs> you be you you be you andy I, everybody else is taken i did see before john neville knows you're dead and i liked it quite a bit but boy did it make me feel sick and dirty <laughs> yes that's that is the thing that happens with that movie. It makes you sick and dirty, uh, but I quite enjoyed it. And uh, so I don't know what I was necessarily expecting going into um, Snowpiercer. This is the only the second time that I have seen it. I saw it once, and I liked it a lot. And then I watched it again for this show. And I I still like it. I still like it. It it I find it doesn't have that the same edge, and I don't think it's a I I, I don't think it's just because I know how it ends. Um, there's really a lot to like about it. I it's just it's just not uh, it's not as great as I remembered it. Huh. What about you? I love it. I think it's fantastic. I really get a lot out of it. I really enjoy the emotional ride I have with the film. Um, I think the energy of it is incredibly strong. The performances are incredible. The look of it, the design, the costumes, uh, just everything, that, uh, the way that it's all put together, I think is just done really, really well. Um, 
I think this is the second or maybe the third time that I've seen it. And I really get wrapped up in it and I find it quite powerful. And I get to the end and I think when I come out of it at the end, I feel like I've had an amazing journey with an amazing storyteller uh, and an amazing filmmaker who has created a really fascinating, uh, not too far in the future sci-fi uh, post-apocalyptic story that works really well to tell this interesting story of what's actually happening on this train, but also giving a nice uh, social commentary on the way our class structure exists and the way things work and what it would take to make changes within our, our structure. So I I really like it. I get a lot out of this thing. Yeah, and all of those things I I like. I mean, I it, it's a it is a high concept film, right? And it's it, it's no matrix to, for me, right? When when I compare kind of like let's look at the at sort of the let's play out what it looks like in the future when we look at the changing nature of power and politics and indoctrination and see how that plays out. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's in that same class category as, as the matrix. And I, uh, it, it does wear its philosophy right on its sleeve, you know, this straight line linearity in character, plot, motivation, the works it's, it's, it moves forward, uh, from left to right, just about, a, a you know, around every corner. Um, it's. Uh, I found myself conflicted in Chris Evans' role as the reluctant leader. He's super reluctant, uh, and yet only in in like word, <laughs> because everything he does, all of his actions, are all the actions of a leader who's not reluctant at all. It's a leader who is uh, subversively trying to make change, and and so I I found that. You know that conflict was not very compelling to me. It was more confusing. But- I don't, th- I don't see that because I see him as a person who views himself as Mason, kind of the uh, that's Tilda Swinton's character, who's kind of the right hand of Wilford Ed Harris's character, who's at the head of the train. Mm-hmm. I see him as kind of viewing himself as that right hand who's helping John Hurt's character Gilliam, the leader of the tail section um, do what they're trying to accomplish. And so I see him that way. And I don't think that he's ever seen himself as the leader. I think he's always seen himself as the guy who's trying to get done for Gilliam what Gilliam wants to get done. Yeah, I can see that. I I can see it. I just feel like it's it's a little bit of a... Um... I, I don't know his his role as uh, maybe his casting as Captain America, you know, makes him the hero. Uh, in in my eye, I can't look at him and not see the um, the leader. I can't. I certainly, you know, I I. Um, but I can. I see what you're saying. I can definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I and I see what you're saying with Chris Evans being cast as the lead here, but this is not a performance that I had ever seen from Chris Evans. And it's very easy for me to lose all of that Captain America, uh, you know, that, that exterior that he has kind of created in the cinematic um, um, uh, body of work that he has done up until this point. I hadn't really seen this sort of film, but I thought he shedded it really quickly. And 
for me, I found the character of Curtis completely compelling as its own creation. I did not get stuck trying to negotiate my um, following of Curtis or my belief, my belief of Curtis as this reluctant um, leader uh, just because of who is playing him. Yeah, and I, I should I should add, I think uh, that Chris Evans demonstrates that he is an incredibly talented actor and performer in this film, and he's not just uh, he's not just a pretty boy superhero. Um, I, I think he really he does a terrific job um, delivering on the promise of Curtis. I absolutely agree with you. Um, so, I, anyway, what do you, let's talk about what you uh, what you love about the film. Can we start with the with the um, can we start with the the structure of the train? Um, sure. I I think that it's it's a just a great concept of of creating this class system of society because I mean essentially everyone else in the world is frozen, dead, gone. This is it. All that's left of 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 mankind is on this train and in order to survive they have ended up um creating their own caste system basically within the train you know basically the the tail section where we meet curtis and gilliam and edgar and tanya and andrew and everybody else they are uh, they are the poor they are it's almost like they are just the 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 bottom feeders and then you've got kind of the middle class in the middle, and then you have the upper class up toward the front. And I think it's just, it's a, it's a great structure. And, uh, you know, stepping back for one quick second, um, because I think this is going to relate to all of the stuff that we're talking about, I really do agree with you that this film is wearing uh, everything right out there on its sleeve. It's not that transparent. Um, but it's creating this allegory that I think... Um, I think that you, uh, the, the joy that I get from it is then reading into it more about not just this, but looking at, looking at this as to how it relates to our society today. And I guess we can talk about that more a little later, but I did just want to say that, that all of this is pretty apparent when you watch this film. You've got the tail section, the poor people, the the front of the train. Those are the the upper class, and then the middle class, and it kind of goes down from there. And so you get this great journey as these guys are trying to take the train because these guys are treated so poorly. They're they're treated like prisoners, basically. They don't have any windows, and that's a, a great thing that you, like when they get to a point in the in the prison cars and they kind of move into the middle class area where they actually have windows and they can see the outside world and they keep moving up through the train through the different food sections and the water section and then they see middle class people getting their hair done and at the nail salon and then they've got the school scene which i think is a great one to talk about and you've got the clubs and the the bars and then you get up to the engine and again we get to this point where all of a sudden there's no windows anymore and it's like you've got this separation of the the people at the bottom end of the train and the top end of the train don't have windows because they're in their own prisons. Their world are their prisons, and it's it's uh, I, somebody compared it to the top of it to casinos and how you just don't have windows because you want this this world to kind of just go on this party world to go on forever. I think that's a pretty apt comparison, but I, I I think that the production design all the way through and the costumes, like I said, everything just just fits so nicely that. It becomes this world that is so easy to accept, even if you 
um, take a step back and, and think, okay, this is might be hitting close to the line of absurdity. But there's something about science fiction that I think you're able to take that kind of uh, those absurd notions and you're able to create a world with it that people buy into more because it's in this science fiction wrapping. And it ends up allowing us to put more metaphors into it and pull more out of it. So um, I don't know. I feel like I'm going on. (laughs) (laughs) You got a lot to say, man. I'm going to give you an amen. Uh, So uh, just just about the the train. And I think this is... uh, I think this is symbolic of why the film has kind of a binary reaction. People either think it's really ridiculous and and terrible or they love it, right? I mean, it feels like there isn't a whole lot of in between on this film. Maybe I'm I'm misreading that. But but it it starts with the you know, whether or not the weight of the absurdity is enough to push you over the edge in your opinion of the film or if the uh, the weight of the concept is enough to let you let the absurdity wash over you. For example, this the the train tracks the path that the train is shown to go on. Okay, so it's twenty four thousand nine hundred and one miles if you just take a straight line path around the equator, right? Sure. Okay, so if you're tra- if you're traveling at I'm going to say one hundred ten miles an hour, right? Um, that would take you. Um, about nine and a half days to get around the world on a train traveling 110 miles an hour. Okay. Okay. But this train actually takes exactly 365 days uh, to get around the world because it's they celebrate a New Year's. One rotation of the train is one rotation of the Earth and or, or of the um, or a trip around the sun, and and that is the the they celebrate the New Year when they hit this plot or this place on the track right in order in order to hit 365 days there has to be 963,600 miles of track and is it is it going 110 miles an hour did they say that no they didn't say that i'm just kind of just a rough kind of train speed that seems pretty fast for for as windy of a track as it looks well it is a windy (laughs) track that's the truth but that's a lot of track and that just Feels. Well, did you see the map? I did see the map. No, I did see the map. It's a, it's, it takes its own sort of. It's fifth... an, it's an absurd, absurd map. Let's, <laughs> let's tour every corner map. of every continent on Earth. <laughs> but nine hundred and sixty-three thousand miles of track. Right. It's just a lot of track. I it's know. a lot of track. So I think that's where it's that's where it starts. And when you start to pull the thread a little bit, if you pull the thread too hard, you you start kind of on un- it, it starts unraveling a little bit. And and I think that's where the the weight of some of the absurdity, um, I think, has has pushed people into the realm of of dislike of the film. And I'm not one of them, actually. I believe it or not, I actually found that that um, I I enjoyed letting those things wash over me. The the things that felt a little bit absurd in in the face of um of of the visuals to me the film where the film wins it is it's not even in the the you know playing it laying all the cards out on the table kind of political or class structured drama it's just in the visuals to me this could be a diorama i i just when i watch it i i visualize it um like it would be a great claymation 
<laughs> really long claymation set, watching a little Chris Evans kind of stop motion his way up and fight, and then they call for, for the Olympic boy, and he brings the fiery torch up, and I, I just can sort of visualize it. I, I love, um, I just love the way it is it is set. And the reason I love the way it is set is because it really demonstrates how uh, visual choices in camera so dramatically impact what you can, what the characters can do rather than have to say. The choices that they make uh, can be so beautifully determined by their actions, not their words, not their script. And I think that, um, uh, I think that is just so great because left or right uh, makes all the difference. Left is back. Left is old. Left is pain. Left is hunger. Left is is uh, is crime. Uh, left is is bad. Uh, right is progress. Right is forward. If you look side to side, side to side is death. Like the few times that we get these head-on uh, collisions with Chris Evans' eyes, it's either when they when the windows open and he's looking out right at us at, at the camera, and he's watching the frozen bodies pass by in the window, or the bright sun, and you you hear, um, you know, John Hurt, you know, his first words as the as the windows go up, he says, "Oh, death, death is is outside there," uh, and and. Uh, so I, I love, I just love it. And the, and the quintessential moment on the fight on the train, when they reach the point where the minions of the upper class don their leather masks and axes and cudgels and, and stand in between the progress of the rear of the train, the lower class, and overthrowing the government and we get this opportunity to see what it means to make a choice to demonstrate character choice as chris evans gets to either look forward and go take mason or look back and go protect edgar and we we later learn that that the the loss of edgar is a is, it carries much more weight we don't have any words we don't have any it's all done in slow motion and this incredible kind of visual ballet of violence uh and and it it perfectly illustrates how we get um you know how we get to see actors make choices without them having to talk to us about this you can't you know this this is the the point of no return uh we just get to see it i love it i love the way that works even the looks on edgar's face as he sees curtis make that choice yes and mason they all yeah. know. They all know what is happening right here, right here. Um, I, I love also that you brought up the the windows too, because I I was thinking about the windows and the windows as prison metaphor, and and I thought it was really interesting that the the middle class, the way Bong Joon Ho portrays the middle class with all the either windows or aquarium or there's something beautiful to look at, but it's all distraction. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. everything that that the middle class sort of exist to do is to distract them from what's going on in in the front or the back 
right? They don't get to see what's going on in the very front or in the very back. They are completely, you talk about a prison, their prison is, is lateral. Uh, they get to see all of the beautiful ice and snow and everything that goes by around them. They don't see it as death at all. Uh, but what they don't get to see is the nastiness happening in the back of the train. They don't get to see what is happening in the front of the train and the and it, you know the the absolute devastation going on to the youth of the train that are becoming sort of repurposed as train mechanics. Um, and and I think that's a that that's an interesting uh, geometry of. Snowpiercer to me. And that's what I find really interesting about looking past the obviousness of kind of what the film is saying and just looking at and this is what I love about science fiction is is what can you pull from it to look at our own society today? And I love the looking at the middle class as kind of this blinded class that, you know, doesn't necessarily pay attention as much to uh, things around it because they're placated, right? The middle class, for the most part, has what they need and doesn't have to worry too much about anything else going on. So, you know, I mean, sure, they'll, they'll you know, help out here and there with, with other things. But for the most part, they are kind of just um, happy cattle just sitting there. And... It's, and and it's, look at all the utility that we give them. Look at all of the, the distraction that we give them. We give them uh, cars and cars and cars worth of saunas and uh, bars and uh, you get your nails done, get a mani-pedi, your whole cars of, of nail and hair work. You get Then you get to the dance club and, and now there are no windows, but there are a lot of lights and flashing distractions and drugs and, uh, and yeah, I mean, Happy Cattle is right. They, don't speak. Just get high, get drunk, and shut up. Exactly. And it's it's this system that you'll you're never going to break free of. The I mean, even Wilford says um, we're all prisoners in this hunk of metal. Even him, even the leader of this train, and the middle class, they're all blind to the fact that they're prisoners. They're all prisoners of this system, and it's only the children. It's only the the two people who have never experienced anything outside of this system who are able to break free of the system at the end of the film. When you get uh, Yona along with uh, Timmy as the two new, basically the new Adam and Eve stepping off of the, the crashed train, now ready to make a new world and it's it's really kind of saying like that's the only way we'll ever break free of the system is by eliminating the system and starting fresh and looking at that in today's society it's like we are we are you know we're stuck in it we're not seeing it we can't see the forest for the trees it's going to take it's going to take some some people to break the system and to step out of it people who were who are born in the system but are able to kind of get out of it and who can't um, who are able to, you know, find a way to rebirth the system without having to kind of create the same mess that was already existing? It's a it's a fascinating look at this this world, and it's uh, I think it's a kind of a really kind of powerful metaphor at the end of the film when we're left with this Adam and Eve character off to basically kind of try starting this new world. Yeah, I you know, I think so too. That the the end, the the who lives who dies kind of question, the allegory at the end I think is is a is a good one. I was left a little bit, you know, I I I got the Adam and Eve bit. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I actually love that um, it is a, speaking of the geometry of the film again, it's a direct lateral escape. Like it is a head on 90 degree from this fallen train as they come straight out towards you. And then uh, we go 90 degrees again on Yona's foot. As, as that she's first stepping to the footfall, yes. And now, once again, we're back into the forward is progress. Forward is, you know, we're moving forward, and then we see the bear. I, I think that's a. I, I really, really loved the the escape. Um, I did find myself thinking, I want to. I, I. This makes me again a horrible person. I want to see more of the upper class having paid for their having paid for the problems. I want to see more of the back of the train free uh, in the, at the end of the film. It ended up a little bit austere for me. Uh, it's in, yeah, a, I in think, kind of an unsatisfying way is all I'm saying. I see. I, 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 and I can see that it's, it's, I think what's happening here is it ends up being more of a metaphoric ending mm-hmm. than perhaps a satisfactory ending in relation to the story itself. Where where we want a triumph, where we, we want, want a visual see, triumph. We want to see all of those people get off the train, and mm-hmm. now we're ready to start a world with all of these people who have survived from the tail end of the train. And heck, I mean, other people can survive too. It's not like everybody on the train is pure evil. Um, it you know, and and. In my head, I like to imagine that a lot of people in other cars ended up surviving, and now we're going to have a big society here. I think that the end that he shows us is just a metaphor of, you know, this is the rebirth. This is the new Adam and Eve ready to kind of start this all over again. Um, but in my head, I feel like there is more. You There's maybe more what? Maybe, that there's, there are more there, people? Who there's survive. more people alive. I, I feel like there is going to be a bigger society able to kind of rebirth and and create a better system for us. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping. I'm just very optimistic. Me too. Yes, me yes. too. Um, the uh, you know again the the some of the symbols I think were were particularly. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say obvious, but that's not necessarily the right word. I I think the uh, uh, the fire creates war uh, metaphor was particularly heavy handed. That they they tried to have war. Uh, and you know, the, the combat sequence, you know, they try to execute the combat as, you know, they, they try to get it right where they can win and create progress, but, but then they have to call for fire. And there is that sort of, um, the primordial sort of experience of the boy running down the train. Um, and, and you feel like, okay, now we've, we're going to introduce technology that we never had into this experience and we're going to we're, we're going to succeed as a result it's going to be very painful but we're going to we're going to adjust it it is all going to happen in a flash um and i so i thought that was in that was interesting in a sequence that is otherwise really gloriously beautifully violent and i think the fire adds a, another layer of texture visually that makes it very interesting uh, but it was it was a, a little bit heavy-handed for me too i uh, you know i don't know i i guess i liked that because it was like stepping backward i didn't I, you know i saw it not necessarily just like fire equals war but just i love the idea of um going so primitive like they go backwards in in time and the way that they're able to actually fight is by stepping out of the technology into something that's so kind of almost this primordial beginning of things but all they had were like sticks and you know knives 
hey, the, you know what I mean? Works, so fire so. was progress. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 fire. I, I guess against the technology of the night vision and everything. That's what I liked. About oh, I see what you're that, saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that too. Uh, let's talk about color because color, I think, is is beautifully used in the film throughout. I love how muted it is through the journey, but it brightens up as we go along, and then I like how. After we pass the classroom, the color starts dropping again. But I love how the classroom is like the peak of color. And it's so bright and cheery and overly optimistic. It almost, um, it's like this sickening candy-coated classroom that I think works so well, especially with Allison Pill as the, uh, as the teacher. She is diabolical. She really is. She's just awful. In this role, awful, awful because she's so awesome. Because she's so awesome, <laughs> diabolical. This is one of those things. I mean, this is the indoctrination. I think the beauty of the color and all of the senses get sort of engaged, and she starts singing that awful song, uh, and and you see the power of education to indoctrinate these children about what is going on behind them, what is going on below them, um, and, and how easy it is for the children to uh, swallow every single bit of it without question. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing look into kind of the world of education. And, you know, I don't know if... I, I haven't heard anything uh, from Bong Joon-ho's kind of personal... Uh, like what he was aiming for in the script here. But I do find it interesting that it is such an American classroom. It's it's really for such a for such a global sort of an international film. Yeah, it the classroom just feels so kind of almost like iconically American, just the way that everything is laid out. And especially with Alison Pill as kind of the pregnant teacher, she just seems so all American. And it's just really um, frightening, especially then when you look at it as this is the classroom that turns into a, a shooting zone. And, you know, having had yet another uh, school shooting today, it just seems interesting that kind of a foreign filmmaker and uh, a foreign uh, group of people putting the story together have this particular place as a, a another war zone, you know? Even more interesting than that to me, and this is, you're absolutely right to bring up um, today's shooting, and just right down the road from me. Yeah. Um, uh, and yet there was one yesterday. I mean, this is just, it's, it's awful. And isn't it interesting that here is a film where the soldiers in the beginning of the film are offered no bullets. Their guns are empty and they the soldiers are impotent and yet as we move into the classroom it is the teachers that have the bullets the teachers have the guns uh and and i think that you know they're they're sort of on its surface it is it's it's a case for the violence that that is going on in in and around classrooms and and how horrible it is it is also you know it, it further cements that metaphor the power of the classroom um, and and the power of of educators when used for good or ill, uh, and um, and and even that the that the guns come 
in buckets of eggs of the symbol of fertility and life, you know, that they're these the guns are pulled out and, and brandished, you know, straight out of the womb, so to speak. It's uh, it it's a it it really troublesome uh, sequence. Uh, and and even more that I mean, like I already mentioned, she is pregnant. She is yeah. fully representative of the life giver, of the mother here. And here she is the one who is the first to pull out the gun and, and wield it on everybody. Right, right, right. It's a it's a oh, rather horrifying testament right there. And it's sort of the pinnacle of their journey, right? I mean, because um, it, it the film sort of coasts once you get through this class. Um, the classroom car, the film sort of coasts all the way to the engine. Uh, there are a couple of action sequences, but there's there's nothing that that is particularly metaphorically dramatic. Um, and so this, to me, really is represents kind of the ideological pinnacle of the film. Uh, it is also the sequence where um, Curtis assassinates the the hand of the leader. Right? right, he assassinates Mason and and uh, sort of finally comes to terms with uh, taking his rightful uh, place as leader of the insurrectionists. Yeah, it, it, right after after seeing Gilliam get executed, um, this is the moment where um, he again you know he looks to the back, but then ends up moving forward, moves mm-hmm. moves to the right, and moves on to. Uh, follow through with the mission that was uh, set forth before him, but now fully taking on the mantle that uh, Gilliam had said was his, but now he really is taking it on as, as his of being the leader and making this journey to the front of the train to confront Wilfred and t- and take over the train. What'd you think of Tilda? Since, since her role ends here. I, uh, just I always love her, and I think that she is just a, a very transformative actress who I, I, I love her uh, philosophy. Um, from what I've heard, her philosophy is every time she's done with a film, she says, that's my last film. And she says, I'm only going to do another one if it's going to be fun and if I could find a way to make it fun. And then she basically uses that as an opportunity to make sure that uh, she really looks at projects to find something that's going to really push her, that's going to give her an opportunity to work with really great people, to work an incredible story. And I love that about her and how she's willing to um, kind of forego a lot of the easy opportunities to find things that are much more unique. And this is one where she ended up talking to to uh, director Bong, as everybody called him, um, about this film. But there really wasn't a role for her that she saw. And she and uh, Bong started talking about the role of Mason. And I guess Bong had already been talking to John C. Riley about possibly playing Mason, which would have been interesting. But they came up with this idea that let's take this this male character as it's written in the script and play it as Tilda. And, and they created this crazy character that almost seems like a comic caricature that you should just laugh at. And she certainly is funny, and she certainly has some great lines, but she becomes such a real being, a, a physical 
uh, transformation happens that you see this kind of absurd character, but it becomes 100% believable that this is who Mason is. And I just love that. I do too. She is such a highlight in this film for me. Uh, it, it it's it, when she we first are introduced to her. I, you know, you're almost left with saying, okay, it's a caricature piece. Uh, but the complexity that she brings, I think, to the role as soon as you discover that not only is she she's she's diabolical, but only when she's armed. And when she's armed, she's armed with those around her who have physical power that she can wield as her armament. As soon as she doesn't have that, and you realize she is really so so weak. She's a turncoat. She is she she has no no spine. Uh, and and to watch her kind of bounce back and forth between, um, you know, her role as the, a thug and her role as a politician. Uh, and I, I mean that in, in the most condescending fashion, uh, is, I think, really a testament to her uh, ability as an actress to pull off such a wackadoodle physical character in a way that actually makes me uh, think of her as, uh, as, of Mason as a character with depth. This is the sort of performance that I watch this and I go, you know, if Meryl Streep had played that, there would have been an Oscar nomination yes. involved. Yeah. I mean, the, this performance here is just so good yeah. that it's, I, I feel like they they kind of missed the boat as far as noticing her. What do you think about the moment where she takes her teeth out? Oh, oh, I love it. I love it. But uh, why do you, why do you think she does it? It's, because it's, she's... It's, go ahead. Well, it's it's like right when she, um, ag- she kind of convinces Curtis to take her along and not kill her, um, because she wants to live, and she takes her teeth out almost to like, I don't know, if it's to show that she's lost something too, that she's kind of, um, she is weak. She has her weaknesses, and and you but know, she's it will one of them. Go along. Yeah, she's one of them. This is my. That's her sales pitch. She's look, look at me, look at me. I don't see. I've lost all of my teeth. I'm, I am one of you. I should absolutely come with you. I can help your case. That is her. That is the ultimate kind of uh, transgression, political transgression against her, uh, the leadership that she purports to serve, which is, um, I am now going to um, uh, sort of defile my own integrity, right? Uh, right. By, uh, by going naked, so to speak, uh, right. in, in order to win... Um, some sort of fealty with um, with whoever is in power. Yeah, I think it's. Which, I thought it was great, and it's so short. It's such a, yeah. a little tiny moment that I think speaks really volumes. I she is a, a absolute highlight of the film to me. Uh, I I love watching her, and that, that's why it's a little bit of a disappointment as soon as the sequence is over. She's assassinated. He takes on the mantle of leader, and and then we move on. Then it's just some thuggery all the way to the engine. Yeah, I, it it does um, change the tone because uh, there had been a lot more opportunity for that back and forth up yes. to this point. But but then I, I mean it does move pretty quick to the end of Act Two when they get to the uh, when they get to the the main engine and they can't get through that door. I mean, it it does. I think it does go pretty quickly, though. Yeah, it does. It it moves pretty quickly. I just it, they don't introduce any real new ideas to for me that I was really able to latch on to until we get to the to the end, and we have the um, we do have the quiet um, uh, monologue, Chris Evans' quiet monologue, um, where we uncover that he or he reveals 
that he in fact was one of the thugs and ended up you know and was one of the the uh, guys that came with knives to take the babies to eat them um, when food first became scarce and um, that he was there when John Hurt had cut off his leg Gilliam had cut off his leg and offered it to the crowd uh, to save Edgar as a baby what'd you think it's- of that speech Oh, it just, I mean, that just sells everything for me. It makes, it makes the film, it's, it, everything steps up a notch when I hear that speech. I think Chris Evans is an incredible uh, actor. That moment really shines through with, I think, his delivery. And it just, I mean, it, it hits me. It, it really brings everything um, together. I get a much better uh, picture of the relationships of all these people, of Curtis's motivations. I mean, I think it's really strong storytelling when you have a lot of stuff like that that's just been subtext up to this point, and then we get this reveal that gives us so much more meat to the understanding of how things were happening and why they were happening um, up to this point, and even from this point forward. I think it it uh, is a it's a great way to kind of reveal this information, and then to use that as kind of the the low point for Curtis at this uh, end of the second act, as he then has to move into the third act and try to now move past that and become the actual leader. This is what I'm what I'm referring to with the uh, sort of the scales of sci-fi vengeance. You know, like if you have bought in. To all of the, if you just let the little things, the little threads that, that of of insanity, uh, wash over you, and just get into it for the visuals and the sci-fi, it's just it's good. It's just a good story. If you if you bought into that, then the scales are going to tip in favor of the film. When he says, "I hate that I know that babies taste best," then you're going to think, "My goodness, it's going to hit you," as it did you, as it does me. I think he's a he is his delivery in this sequence is. is exceptional. I think it's great. I love watching him deliver this scene. If you, if the the rest of the film has sort of fallen apart, then for you, then this sequence is gonna is the last nail in the coffin. Like "Babies Taste Best" is a line that is so ripe for ridicule and mocking <laughs> that <laughs> it is going to be it's going to hurt you to watch this in silence because you will want to start making jokes about it. And and I think that's the the challenge. When I look at the the at the people who don't like this film, who who spout so much vitriol about this film, it always comes down to Chris Evans and the babies taste best. That's so interesting. And I, I guess I just have not um, ever put any of the uh, that feedback in front of me. So I didn't even realize there was that much vitriol about uh, about that particular scene. But I, I, but I can see it. I can, I can see why. Because this is extreme. This is absurd. This yeah. is crossing a line. But I think that's what I really enjoy about science fiction, that you can, you can kind of do that and you can get away with that to a certain extent when you're telling a story. Because so often science fiction, whether written or, or cinematic, it is used as a metaphor. It, it's it's kind of used as a method of telling a story uh, relating to kind of what's going on today or something like that. Sure. And I think that's what he's doing here. And I think he's created this world that, yes, you do have to kind of buy into it in order to 
in order to kind of go along with the actual storytelling of it. But I still think there's a lot of that other metaphor going on through it that, um, I, I don't know, for me, I find that it helps, um, you know, because of the sci-fi nature of it. I find that I buy into that more easily because I know there's so much metaphorical stuff going on in there. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. All right. Um, so they make it to the end and, uh, you, we haven't talked about the role of, um, uh, Kang Ho Song, uh, or I should, I should say, um, Song Kang Ho. Nam, Nam Gung Min Su, uh, mm. as Song Kang Ho and, uh, or Song Kang Ho as Nam Gong Min Su and, uh, <laughs> Koa Song as Yona. Uh, these these two uh, utility players use their drug addiction to make a bomb. That's <laughs> just great. Um, it's great seeing them back together as uh, father and daughter after the host. Yeah, I think they work well together. They both have such great faces. It's it's great to watch them um, here, and I love that it's uh, Namgung who is kind of figured out. I mean, he really is the one who's actually noticed. He seems to be the the one who has his eyes open, not just to the situation that they're in, but to things going on around him and around the train. Now, how in God's name he actually caught that airplane down at the bottom of the uh, Yekaterina Bridge, like that crashed plane? Yeah. Like, I mean, I know he's had like 18 circles around the globe, uh, but... I mean, he's got it like the very first time he caught that. It's like, how did he one notice it, and how did he um, figure out what it was, and how does he remember to go back and check it every year? I mean, I know it's New Year's, but still, you've got to be ready to look out the window right at that particular moment to find that plane and and kind of pay attention to how much snow has been decreasing on it. Lest we lose sight of the fact that when we are introduced to him, he's in a drug-addled state in a drawer. Locked (laughs) in a drawer. Which I think is really interesting, and it it harkens back to um, I feel, I I don't know if it's trains or planes, but I actually have seen um, uh, sleeping quarters like this in, in some Asian... I, I oh, know, yeah. hotels and yeah. it's where, where people and even when you get to Wilford I mean he's got he's got the kids uh, sleeping in drawers you know it's like everybody is compartmentalized but in this case I it's it's taken to that extreme because of course he's a drug addict and so they put him in a drawer and lock him there like what greater statement right. do you need to make about what we do with with those who suffer from you know you know, drug addiction and and psychological problems, and I, like just, let's just put them in a drawer and lock it because that's what's going to happen on the train. Uh, right. So just I thought throw that, some was, drugs that was another. In there for him. Yeah. Right. We're not gonna we're not gonna actually help him. We're just gonna put him away so we don't have to look at him. And the drawer, the outside of the drawer is really shiny and nice, so that's much better <laughs> than actually seeing what's inside it. Uh, Absolutely. I, uh, Song Kang Ho is. Uh, I found myself so much more interested in him in this film than I did in the host. Yes, I agree. I agree. He's so annoying in the host, but yeah. here he's just great. He's <laughs> really good, really, really good. Uh, and and we don't see, um, we don't see 
Koasong all, all that much uh, in the host. Uh, I mean, we do, but certainly not as much as we see her here. She's much more uh, mature here, and I love her kind of devil on the shoulder um, uh, kind of uh, personality. Yeah, and and she is an interesting one. I mean, you know, I, I brought her up earlier as kind of the the Eve of that Adam and Eve pairing that walks off the train, but there's just there's something about her here i think that um gives a a a nice presence this kind of this peaceful young girl who you know has this brain uh addled by drugs and i love how every time they come up to the doors she's always uh you know chronal like she's always the one collecting the the mm-hmm. the drugs for her father and I, I there's just something that uh that is very uh tender about her and I, I really like the moment where her father as she gets this machete and she's about to kill um I think it's Franco the elder uh, with the knife her her dad actually grabs her arm so that she won't be the one who does it um as if he's trying to keep her pure so that she doesn't have to uh, experience something like that and I thought that was a very kind of a touching moment we talked we have talked so much about the um uh, about the sort of the visuals and the design of the film let's talk a little bit about the um, the uh, your thoughts of the uh, cinematography and the camera hong kyung pyo uh, who we have we just talked about with mother what do you think yeah I I think he brings a lot of the tools that he brought there here. A lot of those profile shots that we get here, just like he was doing in Mother. I think that he has a uh, a, a great eye for uh, composition, the way that he structures his shots and the way that he moves things. There's a lot more um, shaky cam in this, and I had forgotten that, but particularly in the very initial. Uh, escape from the the back of the train fight, which for me, that's just like the most tense scene in the whole film. Um, there's a lot of shaky cam going on in there. And I think it works really well in context for what they're doing, especially considering that this is a set, for Pete's sake, that they built on, on uh, just gimbals so that the whole thing could constantly be shifting and moving as if it's a train. And it even has like, it can they can even make it turn so it looks like the whole thing is actually... Um, going around corners and stuff. I mean, it's it's quite a, quite a feat as far as sets go. And then you put a fight in there with shaky cam. I think that uh, uh, Kyung Pyo uh, or does just a fantastic job with the the work that he does here. I do too. And I didn't find the shaky cam. I mean, I noted it, but I didn't find it distracting. I didn't find it the kind of thing where I felt like I ever lost track of the action in a way that made it that that felt like they didn't intend me to. Right. Uh, there, the the sequence where they go through the tunnel and they're in the middle of a giant, you know, melee. I I thought that was incredibly well done. That was a, a just a highlight of visuals for me because of the way they used the light like a strobe, the light through the windows like a strobe to illustrate these kind of stop motion. Like here's here's what the fight is looking like right now in just like a snapshot. And I found myself really moved uh, by that as we watch our favorite characters kind of in the in the middle of the throws. Um, I thought it was just terrific, uh, terrifically well executed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who, who else strikes you that you want to talk about? 
Um, just, I mean, r- running through the list, I, I don't know how to say his name, but Andre uh, Nekvasil, the uh, Czech production designer, I thought just created an amazing world here paired with his team. Catherine George does an amazing job with the costumes. I love how different everything looks all the way through. Uh, Jeremy Woodhead for uh, uh, hair and makeup. I just, I mean, all of these people do such an amazing job of really making this world 100% believable. I mean, I'm just so into this thing. It just feels so authentic and real to me the whole time. Where do you stand on uh, old uh, Marco Beltrami? Wonderful. I, I love the score here. It's not one that um, that I listen to repeatedly, but I feel the music works exceptionally well in context of the film. I do too. I uh, I find myself really into it actually, and and um, I don't I hadn't listened to it, but I I find myself like seeking out sequences because of the music and because of how well I think it it fits. So uh, absolutely, a real shout out there. I I had forgotten that he had done Scream. Oh yeah, um, and uh, three ten to Yuma. Three ten to Yuma, right? Yeah, fantastic, fantastic for that. four. Right, you know the most recent one. Yeah. Do you see that they're uh, they're doing another one? Well, they have to every what two years or four years or something, so they don't lose the rights. Oh boy, I'd forgotten that. That's right. No yeah. wonder. Let's keep cranking that crap out. That's so bad. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, we we didn't actually uh, we didn't actually mention that Jamie Bell is in Fantastic Four, plays Ben Grimm, the Thing. And he is also in Snowpiercer. He's great here. I just love uh, I love old Jamie. Uh, I mean, everybody. Ed Harris, John Hurt, Ewan Bremner, Octavia Spencer. I mean, they're all so great in the roles they have here. I love what they bring to the table in every in every case. Yep. Yep. And I love... This is something else that we didn't mention, but I love that, that when putting this film together, uh, Bong really worked to create this sense of this international train. I mean, we've got, I mean, I was just kind of going through the cast, just trying to figure out where everybody's from. We've got people from South Korea, the United States, England, Scotland, Canada, Romania, Yugoslavia, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Holland, Iceland, the Czech Republic. I mean, it really is a great representation of a big chunk of the world. Yeah, I, I think it really shows. And, and it's funny because coming off of watching his other films, which are, you know, obviously they are Korean films, um, this one still doesn't feel like um, it. You know, I went in expecting a Korean film the first time I saw it. Uh, and, and it doesn't, it's not a Korean film, but it definitely doesn't feel like an American film. Right. It, it has, it maintains some interesting sort of Asian sensibilities to me, uh, but it feels so global that I, it's, it's sort of nice. It really is nice to not feel like it's, it's dominated by um, just straight up weird American uh, tropes. Well, I think uh, that is uh, an interesting lead into the release of this film and the fact that here in the United States, when the Weinstein company, um, where they bought the rights to distribute it, they, uh, good old Harvey Weinstein, told uh, Bong Joon-ho, uh, I want to cut 20 minutes of this and I want to add an open and closing monologue to help explain the film for an American audience. 
Luckily, uh, Bong said, no, I'm not going to do that. And it took a while for something to get figured out. I, I think initially they released it at only eight theaters or something like that um, because they finally agreed to release uh, the actual director's cut that uh, that Bong had put together. And it took a while, but then it, it slowly, uh, between uh, Weinstein Company and Radius, they... Um, they kind of created a new release pattern for for this film and kind of for films to come of doing kind of a a limited release in theaters paired with a uh, a digital distribution at the, basically the same time, and it kind of became something that uh, started a trend. And I think that it's great that um, this is a kind of a film that kind of marks that change in the economics of film and how cinema can be released and a film that just gets a digital release or a, a, a release on digital at the same time it gets theatrical it doesn't mean it's a bad film it's just a new distribution model i remember having that exact thought when i i rented this one uh, no i must have bought it on itunes the weekend it was released uh because we talked about i think we talked about it on the show I think we did. I think we did it as a trailer. And um, so I got it the weekend it was released. And I uh, remember thinking, wow, I, I think I expected it to be dumb. Uh, <laughs> b- because it was that simultaneity of, of release. And I thought this is, is going to be ridiculous. It's going to be just a, it's going to be another thing. It's probably like Rush. Uh, but in fact, uh, <laughs> I, it re- I really enjoyed it. Uh, and and um, it was so, so <laughs> convenient. And I actually was one of the people who went and saw it in the theater. After its limited theatrical release, it was doing so well, and it was getting so much buzz from all the critics and people who loved it that they expanded its release to many uh, more screens. I think it played over 150 theaters. And I went and saw it on the big screen, and it looked fantastic there. I probably should (laughs) have. I probably should have. I've got an okay TV, but man, I probably should have. Yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Anything else before we get to the good stuff? Um, no, I guess I'll just talk numbers for this one since Let's we're kind of there. Yeah. Um, this did get its U.S. release in 2014, and it cost about $40 million uh, to make this movie. Like I said, it, it uh, had kind of that split release. I don't have figures. Um, this is really just theatrical. I don't have any figures on that uh, digital release. Um Although something to note as far as digital releases go is typically the return on uh, each purchase is much greater when it comes to the digital release. Like I think it's closer to 75% um, goes back to the, uh, to the company. Whereas in theatrical, the, I think it's closer to 50-50. And so they get a lot less money for the theatrical. But um, this ended up making domestically about $4.5 million, so not a ton. But internationally, largely due to Korea and uh, Bong Joon-ho's passionate fans in Korea, it made about $82 million internationally. So all told, this film uh, did a good job, made its money back, ended up making about $370,000 per finished minute. Nice. I wish more people had seen it here. I do too. No, I do too. too bad. All right. Well, I think we should probably rank it. Let's do it. 
head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, sign up for an account and you uh, then you just go through our list at the flickchart.com slash the next reel and you start ranking them. And then you'll be caught up so that when you get to Snowpiercer, you can decide, was I swayed by the uh, scales of sci-fi justice uh, one way or another? Let's see. All right, here we go. First up, Snowpiercer or Kind Hearts and Coronets? Snowpiercer all the way for me. Really? Oh, yeah. All right. This for me, I you know, I mean, if it was just me, this would probably be in my top 10. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll go with you on this one. Okay. Snowpiercer or Sleepless in Seattle? No, Snowpiercer. I'll say Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer or Kramer versus Kramer? Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Snowpiercer. Are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> one. All I can think of is the bicycle scene. <laughs> I know. Butch Cassidy. All right. Uh, one, one, two, two three. three. Scissors. Paper. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's right. You got me that on that one. That just happened. That just happened. Snowpiercer or Close Encounters of the Third Kind? I, I'm I'm leaning toward Close Encounters, but if you're heavily on Snowpiercer, I could be swayed. This is, this is an interesting one, because I could go either way depending on my mood. Yeah. But right now, I'm leaning towards Snowpiercer, because I just feel like there's a little more... Uh, interesting things happening in there okay that's fine snowpiercer or stand by me um hmm. stand by me we like that film we did like that film it's number 15 yeah. on our list yeah uh, maybe it's the recency but i i feel like snowpiercer wow I know. Snowpiercer. Jeez. Okay. I'll give it to you. I may live to regret this. <laughs> you got Butch Cassidy already. I did. Now, here's one that we'll see. Snowpiercer or Brazil? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I got to go Brazil. I'm going to go Brazil on this right. one. But damn, talk so about talk about that. That is a good flick chart matchup, though. That is a great, a great sci-fi uh, films there to uh, high discuss. concept, high style. Yeah, yeah. And which, and I think that's something we didn't even mention. But there is an interesting Terry Gilliam esque yes. feel to this, also. Very. I much. think I think Mason definitely feels like kind of a Gilliam character. We've got a character named Gilliam for Pete's sake. <laughs> it definitely feels like it's got that uh, vibe running through it. Yeah. I, I agree. I, it's that's an easy one. Yeah. So um, that's uh, number fifteen now out of two hundred and four. It did pretty well, right off the bat. I think so. This is yeah for our Bong Joon Ho series. This is uh, it would go Snowpiercer and then Mother and then the Host. Is that how you you would rank it? I would. Yeah, I would rank it that way. All right. I'm. I'm a. I, I agree. I think if I'm. If I'm just saying. I. But I. I. We'll have to see next week once I get another week under my belt. But mother is is just really stuck with me. Uh, no, I agree. It's so. it's powerful. You know, I'd love to go back and and 
visit and maybe in a future series if we can do just a two-parter um his two films before yeah uh, the host yeah finish this finish this up so so after they visit us on Flickchart, Pete, maybe yeah. they should head on over to letterbox.com slash the next reel, check out all of our ratings and reviews. Yes, they what should. What would you do give that. it to what would your star rating for this one? If if you're telling me this is legitimately in your top ten, then this is, I imagine, a five star film for you. Is that true? This is a five star film. I know I say my top ten of the films we've discussed, not yeah, necessarily yeah. of all my No, films, of course. Yeah. Of course. If I wasn't in the way. You, if you weren't in the way, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I see. It's it's probably a solid four star film for me. Okay, I'd give it four and a half for for the. I'd I'd be okay with a four and a half, knowing your love for it. So you're saying you're giving it a four and a half? I'm saying I'm going to give it a four, so I'm okay with it being four and a half. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Four and a half, it mm-hmm. is. And uh, and so there you have it. That is the uh, end of our Bong Joon Ho series. If you missed any of these, make sure you head over to. Uh, you can listen to them on the website and or subscribe uh, on iTunes for free. You should definitely go over to iTunes. You know, iTunes. Uh, they say it's the new. Uh, that's the new radio. Yes, so I've heard. I've heard those in the know. Uh, but really, what it, it is still the biggest podcast directory for us. It is the largest. Uh, by far, the largest portion of our listeners come through some somehow. They come by way of iTunes to get to the next reel. So it really helps us if you take a few minutes, head over, give us a. a we appreciate your five star reviews. Those are the ones we really, really love. We will read all of them. How about that? Is that fair? I think that's fair. All right. So thank you for for taking that. And I know iTunes is is not the easiest. Uh, system to navigate it's it's frustrating so if you leave a review know that i know what a pain in the butt it is so thank you doubly so here here all right all right so where do we go from here in our next little series yeah we're gonna well it is october pete it's that time for you know creepies and crawlies and uh and naughty things to be coming out of the woodworks and in this particular case we're going to be doing a naughty children series which i think is going to be <laughs> quite a bit of fun <laughs> whose idea was this i actually think this idea came from a listener uh i don't think the idea necessarily but certainly the first film that we're going to be talking about the uh 1956 film the bad seed which i have never seen before really no have you Yes, my mom made me watch it. <laughs> Was it when you were doing something bad? <laughs> it reminds me. <laughs> now, I should feel no guilt at all calling my mother and telling her to watch Mother because she made me watch The Bad Seed. <laughs> That's so fitting. That's uh, hilarious. Yeah, it's so it's, it's not funny. it's not great. Um, so you know, this is uh, this is uh, yes, uh, it's I I've seen it. I, there's it's super. Well, it's it's dark, and and that that Patty McCormick, uh, talk about you know to get a to get an Oscar nod for being a a young child actor who is exceptionally good at being murderous. That's a big deal. Wow, I'm looking more and more forward to this. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was Brenda Brenda um, Tackett who posted on Facebook, this was a while ago, said that we should talk about The Bad Seed. So <sighs> finally getting around to it, Brenda. But yeah, this is going to be a fun series with uh, The Bad Seed, the original Village of the Damned, 
The Innocents, and then it kind of that, those are all 50s and 60s films, and then jump all the way up to the 80s, and we're going to end it with uh, Stephen King's Children of the Corn. <laughs> oh, oh, I've never thought about blenders the same way since. <laughs> this is a, it's a fun October series. I'm looking forward so to this. Bad. Well, if you want to keep up with us, you can do it a number of different ways. This film is. Uh, available. It's you can get the DVD from Netflix. It's not available to stream on Netflix or Hulu Plus. Uh, it is available to stream uh, if you want to rent it on Amazon Prime or by way of iTunes. You can get the Bad Seed. So there you go. Fantastic. You can find another way to get it through mischief and madness. That's the it. Various. I think that's it. I think with that, I need to go to bed. All right. I gotta go pack the kids lunch with some protein bars. I've got uh, Richie, who reports from the land of Amazon with one stars, saying, Worst movie I've seen in a while. I actually watched this movie on Netflix, but it was so bad that I had to review it here as well to prevent people from wasting their time and money on it. Poor script, bad acting, and more plot holes than bullets being fired out of a moving train. That didn't make sense? Well, the movie makes even less sense. I've watched spoof movies that were more enjoyable. At least they didn't don't pretend to be allegories. Maybe I'll watch Dumb and Dumber after this to make up for the IQ points I lost while watching this one. Uh, and so I think Richie would be an example of somebody whose sci-fi scales tilted away from the film. He's not able to to rationalize that one. In the, re- the, the comment, Scott B. writes in says, I agree 100%. I just wish your review had been here before I wasted my money renting it. <laughs> No. Well, there's definitely a lot of reviews like this. Do you I'm see what I mean? At, like uh, the split is really interesting. It's like 30% five star, 21% four star, 15% three star. It's 20% one star. Like it's a pretty yeah. even spread. It is. It is. I mean, looking at here is here's a, just a sampling. This is the single worst movie I've seen in decades. Truly terrible from every aspect. Blah. <laughs> I did not care for the movie in countless ways. Very creepy. At least they found it creepy. But my review. Actually, even though there's somebody else who said minus five, actually. Wow. (laughs) They said, turn it off after a while. Someone else suggested it, so they don't get to choose the next movie. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. But really, the one that I wanted to read is a one star by Patricia Mullins, who says, what a steaming pile of poo. (laughs) (laughs) And the best part is poo is capitalized like it's, you know, proper now. Well, it's proper, yeah. It is proper poo. Yes. Steaming pile of proper poo. (laughs) Oh, Amazon.